Well, when I was growing up, I don't remember being taught that Catholics were bad people or that they weren't real Christians, but that's just kind of the current that I grew up in. That's just the, the way that my church kind of talked about things. It was never stated, but it was kind of always there. Nobody taught me that, you know, Catholics, um, that they, you know, they were bad people because they prayed to dead people called saints. Nobody taught me that uh, they were bad because they drank wine with communion and coming who drinks wine? We drink grape juice. Real Christians don't drink wine. They drink grape juice. Uh, Catholics, they baptize babies thinking that somehow that saves them. We're better because we baptize adults and they can make their own decision. We were just better and real Christians. We were right. They were wrong. Pope? We don't need a Pope confess our sins to a priest, we don't need to confess our sins to a priest. We can confess our sins to God. When we went to my grandparents' church, they were Lutheran, and they would say that the apostles are in the Nicene Creed every single Sunday. Whenever there was the part that said, I believe in the Catholic church, I would never say Catholic, because I'm like, I'm not Catholic. I would just say, I believe in the, wait, church. Okay. And maybe that's how you were raised. Maybe you have those same feelings. Maybe you are new to the faith or you're just checking it out and you're like, come on, I don't even understand. Why can't you guys all just get along? And maybe if you're Catholic, you're here today and you have problems with us Protestants. Like you guys are always protesting everything. You guys split the church once. You're going to split it again. You keep splitting it. You're not real Christians. Protestants, you, could, you don't even hold Mary, the mother of God in the flesh, in high regard. Uh, you guys, you don't use wine in communion. In fact, your communion ceremony is pretty lame because you don't actually believe that it becomes the physical body and blood of Jesus. You Protestants, you guys are ignorant of church tradition. In fact, you don't even have any traditions. And you can feel some of the tensions there. And you might be wondering, well, why is it that there's a Catholic church and there's a Protestant church and there's orthodoxy? Where did all the denominations come from? And some of you, you're, again, if you're new to the faith, you're just checking it out, you might be wondering, okay, why can't you guys all just get along? Because from our perspective, you have far more in common than what you have different. And so you try not to sometimes think about it too hard because thinking about it hurts your head. And maybe this division in the church sometimes, maybe it causes you to say, I've got enough division in my life that I don't need to be part of that. But the fact is, whether you're raised Catholic or you're raised Protestant or no faith at all and you started following Jesus, once you begin following Jesus, you are part of the little c Catholic church. You see, the word Catholic, only all that it means is the universal church. As we talked about last week, Jesus' church is universal. That is, it spans both time and space. It spans the ages. It's made up of people all around the globe. And so whenever you say, I want to follow Jesus, you're entering into his Jesus gathering, his community, his little c, universal Catholic church. Now, big C is the Roman Catholic church, but we're talking about the little c church right now. And you can't follow Jesus without being part of his gathering. So whether you're, you're Protestant, you're Catholic, Anabaptist, Orthodox, we all have far more in common than what we have in different. We're, we're all on the same team. We're all part of one body. We all have one Lord. We all are part of the same faith that was passed down through the generations. We all have one mission. 
And that mission is to spread the good news about the kingdom of Jesus. Seems like anymore, people are recognizing that we have more in common than what we have different. We're beginning to, to come together to do things, and that's one of the things that I love about the Alpha Course that we run here, is that it's run by Catholic churches. It's run by Protestant churches. It's run by Orthodox churches, and every church in between, that we can all come together to do the same thing. We're all running this race, cheering for one another. Uh, about a decade ago, and it feels weird for me to say a decade ago, uh, because I've been at the same job for 12 years. And so early on in my career at Ohio State University, the lab that I was working in, we decided that we were going to go on a summer canoeing trip. And we were going to go down to the Mohican. If you've ever been down the Mohican, you know that it's pretty shallow, it's pretty slow. But we went right after one of those big summer storms, and so the water was pretty high and it was moving pretty fast. And we knew that all we had to do was get our canoe into the water and we began to be carried along down the river. Now somehow, uh, I managed to get into a canoe that had two other people that didn't speak good English. They were not native English speakers. And as well, they, uh, they said that they'd been canoeing before, but I found out afterwards that they had never canoed before. So I should have known that we were in for a disaster and a disaster we did encounter. And as we were carried along down that great river, we hit one of those logs that stick up above the waterline. Just like that, our canoe T-boned that log. And I was trying to steer us and get us out of that jam, but as soon as we hit that log, the girl in the center dropped her big, expensive camera, bag and all, into the river and exclaimed, my camera, and leaned over to get her camera, and we were toast. We were all in the water. She did rescue her camera, we rescued the canoe, and uh, everything was all right, but as soon as we got into the water, we began to be carried along, carried down the river. We didn't even have to try to swim. It was carrying us along and moving us along with it. And that river, that great river, is a metaphor that oftentimes is used for the church. It's a river of saints, a river of people that have gone before us, that it was going to continue on after we get out of that river, of people that have passed on the faith from one generation to the next, to the next. And all we have to do when it comes to the river of faith, just simply join in, just simply step in that stream and allow the river of faith, the people that, that went before us to carry us on. And today we're going to explore that great river, the river of faith. Now last week uh, we began this series by looking at the book of Acts. And you can go to our website, hopecommunityonline.org, and you can watch the entire message right there. But just a quick recap. The book of Acts records what happened after Jesus uh, was crucified and he, after he was raised from the dead and then ascended into heaven. We read how Jesus met with his apostles for 40 days, how he poured out upon them his Holy Spirit to empower them to go out, to spread the good news of his kingdom that had come. First in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and in Samaria, and finally to the ends of the earth. And the, the book of, of Acts recounts how that spread. It recounts how God was working through his apostles to demonstrate that his kingdom was here by doing miraculous things, by empowering people to do incredible things, by the power of the Spirit, and it finally it ends with the Apostle Paul, having gone to, and taken the message to the ends of the earth, which at the, end of the, at the ends of the earth at that time was the Roman Empire. But he found himself in a prison in Rome, waiting trial, 
And while he was still there, he was inviting people to follow Jesus. And the the gospel writer Luke leaves us with this question, are you going to join in? Are you going to, to be part of what God is doing? And so today we're going to follow what happened next. We're going to follow it to the ends of the earth. And today's message, if you're here today and you'd call yourself a follower of Jesus, this is for you. If you're new to the faith and you're just kind of checking things out, I'm, you're off the hook for today. I'm not going to talk directly to you. Uh, we're going to talk to you next week. Uh, but today we're following the, the church to the ends of the earth. What happened next? Last week we covered the entire book of Acts in one message. Today we're covering 2,000 years of church history in one message. So hang on. We're going to go fast, but we're only going to hit the high points. We're not going to go into details about all these other people. But after the book of Acts, the church continued to spread throughout the Roman Empire. You see, the Roman roads and the mail system that they had in the empire made travel relatively easy. Still difficult in our modern senses, but easy compared to pre-Roman times. You could get places pretty easily uh, and allowed people to then travel around the Roman Empire spreading the good news about the kingdom of Jesus. But also at this time, the, the Christians, they were not well liked by the empire, by Rome. In fact, they went through unimaginable persecution. When Nero burned Rome in AD 64, he was looking for people to blame it on. He couldn't blame the Jews because there were just too many of them, but perhaps he could blame the Christians This little tiny group of people that were on the fringes of society. Yes, he would blame the Christians and blame the Christians he did. So much so that he had them arrested and impaled on stakes and would burn them alive at night to light his garden as he rode his chariot around his gardens. He had Christians arrested and covered in animal skins to be torn apart then by wild dogs. As a way to enact a mythology that they had about one of their own gods going hunting with his dogs and being torn apart by the man's own dogs. Tradition has it that the Apostle Paul was beheaded during this time in Rome for his faith, that the Apostle Peter was also crucified during this time upside down for his faith. And he was crucified upside down because tradition has it that the Apostle Peter, when they were about to crucify him, said, I am not worthy to die like my Lord. And so in a sick and twisted way, they crucified him upside down to make it take even longer. Christians were thrown into the Colosseum and torn apart by wild animals for sport, just simply for acknowledging uh, that that Caesar was their god. It's a miracle that Christianity made it out of the first and second century. But Christianity, in spite of the persecution, it caused it to continue to spread and to continue to grow. And it continued throughout that first and second century so much that people began to, to wonder, okay, what is it about these Christians? What are they actually doing We have evidence of this by Pliny the Younger, who was governor of an area that we now call modern-day Turkey. Uh, He wrote a letter to Emperor Trajan. He captured some of the slaves that they called deaconesses, he writes, and he writes this about the Christians. That the sum and substance of their fault or error has been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God. Because remember, the Christians, they didn't worship Caesar, they worshiped Christ. And the, the Romans, they're like, this guy, we crucified him, he's not a God because gods can't be killed. So they were singing a hymn to Christ as to a God. And they bind themselves by oath not to do some crime, but not to, false, to, not to commit fraud, theft, adultery, or falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. So after exploring these Christians and torturing them, getting answers, he's like, 
they're not really that bad because they're not getting together to say that we're going to go out and commit some fraud, some crime, but rather we're getting together to say we're not going to commit theft. We're not going to commit adultery. We're not going to falsify our trust or return a trust. And when this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food. But ordinary and innocent food. See, the Christians, they were accused of being cannibals because they had these things that they would call love feasts where they would get together and they'd have this meal and they would drink the, the blood of their God and eat his flesh. And so to the outside Roman world, they thought that the Christians were cannibals, that they were getting together to eat people. But actually, they were discovered to be eating ordinary and just quite innocent food. They didn't worship the gods, but they didn't seem to be rebelling against the empires. We thought they were cannibals, but they're not actually cannibals. And the emperor responds by basically saying that they don't seem to be a threat to the empire, so don't worry about them. Let them go. And Christianity continued to spread so much so throughout the next century that in 312, the Roman emperor Constantine converted to Christianity. Now, his conversion is debated among Christians, debated among scholars, whether he actually became a Christian or just saw it as a way that he could use uh, this powerful force to conquer other empires. You see, Constantine, on the night of his conversion, had a vision or a dream from God. And in that vision, he saw uh, a cross, and, in the, and God spoke to him and said, in this sign, conquer. And so the very next day, he marched his armies through bodies of water to baptize them into the faith and painted crosses on their shield and went off to conquer other nations. Contrary to the things that Jesus had taught, and Jesus said, you are to love your enemy and love your neighbor as yourself and bless and do not curse, do not persecute. But that's the very opposite thing that Constantine did because for Constantine, it wasn't necessarily about worshiping Jesus, but it was about building his own empire. And so suddenly the church went from an oppressed minority, a minority to a powerful majority. It was now the religion of the most powerful empire in the world. The church went from flourishing on the fringes or to the center of power. And Constantine, he had this, this weird respect, this newfound respect for the bishops, for the priests, and for the people that ran this new thing, or this thing called Christianity in the different churches that he would have the bishops travel around with him, that he would have them eat at his table, that he would shower on them large sums of money and help them build large and magnificent churches. And some of the churches that he built are still around today. If you ever go to Israel, many of the holy sites, Constantine's mother built a church over top of these holy sites to preserve them. Because had it not been for her, a lot of these sites would have been lost. Because at that time, there's enough oral tradition. They were close enough to the early history to know that this was the place where Jesus was born, that this was the place you know, where he was crucified, that, and so on. So they built churches over those places. But such access to power began to corrupt the church. And as this time, during this time, as Christianity was expanded, it started to incorporate elements of other religions as it encountered them. And it was up to the bishops in different cities in the empire to begin to make sense of what was the faith that had been passed down from generation to generation from the apostles. And oftentimes these bishops, they would write to the bishop in Rome because he had a large church. It was also the, the church of Peter and the Apostle Paul and the church of many different martyrs, people that had been killed for their faith. And over time, that church in Rome began to, to gain authority and power, especially with the conversion of Constantine. But again, that power began to corrupt, and soon Rome began to claim power and authority over all churches. 
See, at that time, each church was an individual body with their own bishop or their own pope, or pope just simply means their own father, their own church father. But it was the, the bishop in Rome that believed himself to be the continuation, the embodiment of the apostle Peter. And so Pope Leo I established himself as the pope over all churches, and the modern Roman Catholic Church was born. It's also during this time that church councils were called to help sort out doctrine, to help uh, guard against different heresies that arose or false teachings because there were different sects and different people that were teaching incorrect things about God and incorrect things about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And so they would gather these councils together of different bishops to help sort out what the various doctrine was, the things that the church had always believed since its earliest founding. They sorted out things based on the teachings of people like Irenaeus, who was a disciple of, the, or of Polycarp, and Polycarp was a disciple of the apostle John, whose gospel we are working through this year. So they would talk to, to Irenaeus. They would, they would ask him, okay, what is it that Polycarp passed on to you that he got from John? They would clarify things like Jesus really was the eternal God in the flesh, that he wasn't just another human. They clarified that Jesus was fully divine. They, they clarified that uh, the Holy Spirit was God, that it wasn't just an angel uh, pretending to be God. The councils also met to determine which letters should be included in the New Testament based on who wrote them, not who they didn't want in the New Testament. It's popular today to say that, oh, the, the men that got together and put together the New Testament, that they didn't want women to be part of the New Testament, and so they cast aside their letters in fact, the best scholars today will say that's a myth. That's a myth that, ha that there is no founding for that. But rather, these men got together to establish which books should be considered authoritative based on who wrote them, the time of their writing, and the things that they taught that the church had always believed. And we said the Apostles' Creed, or we sang the Apostles' Creed earlier. That was one of those things that the church used as a standard to say, okay, does it line up with these things that have been passed down from generation? Because if it doesn't, we're not going to include it in what would become the New Testament. When Rome fell in 476, it was the popes that stepped in to help bring order and stability to an empire in shambles. But it was also an incredibly dark time for the church. In fact, if you're a student of history, you might know this as the Dark Ages. It was a time of conversion for the masses, a, a time of crusade. It was a time of empire building and of trying to, to force people to convert to Christianity. And if they didn't convert, they were killed. We're going to talk more about that next week. But it was also a time when the Eastern and the Western church split over doctrine, over doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the forced celibacy of the priests, and using unleavened bread or leavened bread in communion. The Orthodox church, the Eastern church said, we can use whatever bread we have. The Catholic church said, no, we can only use unleavened bread. And so it caused this great split, this great schism in the church in the year 1054. And this great schism would last over 1,000 years until 1965, when both the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church finally got together and both lifted the excommunication against one another. That great schism lasted over 1,000 years. They didn't get along. Also during this time, the church continued to amass enormous amounts of power, power that it was never meant to have, and in doing so, the church lost its soul. But all was not lost because people began to look to the scriptures, look to the Bible for guidance. They began to, to read the Bible for themselves instead of just listening to what the Pope or the priest said they should, should read. 
or understand. And so they would do this by, by reading the, the, the scriptures in the form of a giant codex, which was chained to the altar of most churches. They began to, to realize that perhaps what the church was teaching wasn't what the Bible was teaching. And John Wycliffe, uh, in the late 1300s, fed up with the moral corruption and the power of the church, translated the Bible from Latin into English to be read for the masses. This would inspire and pave the way for Martin Luther then to go on and do the same thing almost 100 years later after Wycliffe. In 1545, or 1455, Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press in order to print Bibles for the masses, to take the Bible out of the church and now give it to the average, ordinary people. In 1517, Martin Luther began what would become known as the Great Reformation of the Church. Because Martin Luther, who was a Catholic monk, recognized that there were things about the church that was wrong, things about the power, about its structure. And he wrote down his, his things that the church needed reform, and he nailed them to the castle church, on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And it sparked a revolution. It sparked what's now known as the Reformation. You see, Luther didn't seek to start something new, but rather to reform the old. But the church was not willing to reform itself. And so he began not what's now known as Protestantism. So we have another split within the church. We have the Roman Catholic Church now splitting into Protestantism. At the same time, uh, Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland began a, a reformation, but Zwingli was a little bit more persuasive than Martin Luther. You see, Zwingli, Zwingli, Zwingli I can't say it right now, was allowed to continue te to teach versus Martin Luther. He was banned from teaching, but he continued to do so. But Zwingli taught things like Christ is the only mediator between God and man, that we don't need uh, somebody in between us to go to God. He began, he began a revolution that we would call the Anabaptist movement or the rebaptizers because at this time most people were Catholic and so they were baptized as infants. But Zwingli, after reading the scripture, said, no, this is something that all people can trust in, that they can trust in Jesus for themselves and be baptized again. And so the Anabaptists, the rebaptizers, were begun. But Zwingli was not well liked and ended up actually being killed by drowning. You like being baptized so much, okay, we're going to permanently baptize you. And so the church had Zwingli uh, baptized permanently. You have at the same time John Calvin in France giving us what become known as systematic theology, clarifying church doctrine. Uh, and then we get to William Tyndale in England. William Tyndale illegally translated the Bible from English uh, using Luther's German and the original Hebrew and Greek texts. But he didn't use words that conveyed the authority of the church or the, the papal bulls. Instead, he used words like love and repentance instead of charity and do penance. But the thing that got Tyndale into the most trouble was how he translated the word church. See, he didn't use the German word kirche, which means a building, but rather he used the word that meant gathering or assembly. And that meant an undoing of the power and the authority of the church and the people of the church didn't like that and would end up cause having, they would end up having William Tyndale killed for his translation just simply of the word church. But the students of these reformers, they took it even further because they had been taught to read the Bible. They, they read the Sermon on the Mount. They knew what Jesus taught and they sought to live that out wholeheartedly. They become known as the radical reformers, and one of those radical reformers is Simon Meadows, who uh, taught his followers to wholeheartedly follow Christ and live out the Sermon on the Mount. You might know his followers today as the Mennonites, 
Another group of people that you might have heard of are the Amish, begun by Jacob Amen around the same time, believing that there should be a separation between the church and the state, that there shouldn't be a state church because they've seen what power does when the church and the state are one. So we can thank them for our modern concept of a separation between church and state. In 1609, then we have the birth of the Baptists. And the Baptists recognizing that, again, they were supposed to go out into all the world and spread the good news. And so they began what's now known as the modern missions movement of sending people out to far, the far reaches of the earth to spread the good news of the kingdom of God. You also have the translation of the King James Bible in 1611, which if you grew up uh, in and around Christianity, maybe you've heard the these, thou, the art. Um, maybe you were taught the Lord's Prayer only in the King James, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, not hallowed, hallowed, be, we add extra syllable there, hallowed be your name. But, and we make fun of the King James, but the King James is actually a groundbreaking translation at its time because it made use of the best documents that they had and is a very accurate translation. Hop across the pond to the United States and you have Jonathan Edward preaching and be starting what would become known as the Great Awakening here in the United States and would spread then to Europe. You have John and Charles Wesley beginning what's now known as Methodism or the United Methodist Church. And while the church continued to wane in parts, it continued to grow and expand in other parts. And here in the United States in 1811, the Restoration Movement was begun by the Campbells. And I mentioned the Restoration Movement because they sought to restore the church back to its first century roots, to get back to the original teachings of the apostles. And if you've ever heard of a first Christian church, a Christian church or a church of Christ, those churches come out of the Restoration Movement. In fact, my own family comes primarily from Restoration Movement churches. There's quite a few of them in this part of the country. In 1878, we have the birth of the Salvation Army by William and Catherine Booth, who sought to take care of the poor. They sought to, to help give people dignified employment. And one of the ways that they did that in 1878 was by collecting unused paper, discarded paper, and recycling it to print their news on, their newsletter. And so it was one of the first modern uh, ways of recycling things. And it was started by some people that wanted to give people dignified employment. William and Catherine Booth in starting the Salvation Army. And then fast forward and we get into to more modern times. We encounter people like Soren Kierkegaard, Charles Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, Karl Barth, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, C.S. Lewis, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, and Martin Luther King Jr. We have these people to thank. The people that have gone before us, the communion of saints, for passing the faith on to the next generation the next generation, the generation after that. And we are here today because of these people deciding to risk their lives because of what they believed and because of who they encountered. It's what we mean when we say that the church is past, present, and future. That there are people that came before us that carried the faith and people coming after us who are going to carry the faith long after we're gone. And so the challenge that all this history invites us into is are we going to step into it? Are we going to dip our toe into that great river of faith and allow it to shape us and to guide us and to transform us and allow us to pass it on to the next generation? But we're not alone in wondering this and talking about this. The, the, the author of the book of Hebrews in our New Testament goes through in chapter 11 of his, his letter about all these great heroes of the faith 
These people that had went before them and passed the faith on to the next generation. These people that trusted in God and was credited to them as righteousness. They never saw the fulfillment of God's promises, but yet they trusted. They continued to believe and trust in God's goodness and pass on the faith to the next generation. And we turn the page to chapter 12. And we read this. That therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that there are so many people that have gone before us in the faith that it looks like a cloud. And that cloud now envelopes us or surrounds us. We have these people to thank for going before us. And if only the, uh, the gospel writer, or not the gospel writer, the author uh, of Hebrews could see the people that came after him, could see the great cloud of witnesses that is present today, whose lives bore witness to their faith. The emphasis isn't that we should follow them, but rather that we should look to them, that we should learn from those heroes of faith who have gone before us. Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us, every hindrance, the things that, that hinder us at this time, you know, the, the, the runners and, and races would enter the stadium in these long flowing robes, and they'd parade around to be seen by the spectators, and then when the race was ready to begin, they'd cast the robes aside, and they'd run the race without hindrance or without clothing, because the clothing is what hindered them from running a successful race. And it's that we're invited to run the race the same way, to cast off everything that is entangling us, that is holding us back. Let us get, every, get rid of everything, especially the sin. I don't know what sin is holding you back, but there's something that might be holding you back from running your race. Let us cast aside every sin that easily ensnares us and let us run the race with endurance the race that lies before us. Let us run with endurance, not with speed, but with endurance, with active endurance involving effort and struggling. The Christian life wasn't meant to be easy, and in fact, it's not easy. There's going to be struggle. There's going to be hardship along the way, but let us endure. And let us run, not in a present tense, but rather a future tense, meaning let us keep on running the race because it's not over yet. Because if you're still alive, if you've still got a heart that beats, God is not done with you. So let us run with endurance. The race that lies before us has already been marked out for us by our King Jesus. Continuing on, he he writes, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Look away from everything else. Let's fix our eyes solely on him and run a straight path. Because he is the pioneer and the the perfecter of our faith. He is the pioneer, the one that blazed the trail before us. We're not supposed to model our lives after the people in Hebrews chapter 11 or the people uh, of church history, but rather fix our eyes and model our lives after Jesus. He is the champion of faith. He trusted God until the end. He won. He is the champion. Surely God could have delivered Jesus from the cross because it looked like foolishness, It looked like failure because gods don't die. But that's where the victory was won. It was won by going to the cross for you and for I, so that way we might enter into a new relationship with our Heavenly Father. He is the author, the perfecter, the founder, the forerunner, the pioneer, the one that blazes a trail ahead so others can follow after him. 
is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. That for the joy that lays before him and that lay before him, he endured the cross. Despising the shame. Despising the shame and the humiliation that came with crucifixion. Of being spat upon, of being beaten, of being humiliated. But he remained focused. He remained steadfast on the goal, on the joy that was to be his. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God because he finished the race. He completed the race and we are invited to run the race after Jesus because he is our perfecter. He is our pioneer. He is the one who is faithful, the one who is faithful and we are not faithful. So we can fix our eyes on him. Let us fix, I don't, I don't know what happened to my other slide. Oh well, it's gone. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus because somebody passed the faith on to us Let's pass the faith on to others. But we can't do that if our eyes are fixed on everything else around us. We can't do that if Jesus is just one of many different goals that we have. And we can't do that if we look, are looking at what is right in front of us. I mean, try running a straight line just looking down at your feet. And you can get up right now and try it. If you're watching online, get up, run around your living room, and you're just looking down at the ground and see how straight of a line you can run. You can't run a straight line looking down at your feet. You can't mow a straight line looking down at the pass you just made. You have to look ahead. You can't rake a straight windrow of hay looking at the hood of the tractor, but you have to look out ahead. So let us fix our eyes out ahead on Jesus, the author, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. Because you can't do it looking around. You can't do it looking down. You have to fix your eyes ahead. So practically, here's what that looks like. Here's what we can do. And for your parent here today, you're watching online, that means showing up consistently, having your kids in church. This means doing the parent cue with your kids when we send it home with your kids on a Sunday morning because the parent cue is designed to help you talk about what they learned, help you talk about faith with your kids in spite of the fact that maybe you don't have much faith yourself. But you can reinforce and pass along what faith you do have Showing up consistently because we have leaders here who are here consistently to pour into your kids, to help partner with you to be a better parent. Because as a church, we're only going to have about 40 hours per year with your kids. But as a parent, you have over 3,000 hours per year with your kids. And so we want to help you make the most of those 3,000 hours as you pass the faith on. Because we don't want to parent your kids for you. We want to help you be a better parent and that might mean that you have to stop doing some things to show up consistently, and that's going to be hard, but it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it to pass the faith on to the next generation because here's the thing about kids. They will never take your faith seriously if you don't take, it faith, take faith seriously. If you don't make it a priority in your life, how can you expect them to do that? You see, we live in a culture today that's trying to, to colonize our kids, that's trying to, to take over your family, take over your job as a parent. But that's not what we are here to do as a, as a church. We're here to help you be a better parent, to help you be the best parent that you can be as you try to pass your faith on. And don't start coming to church when your kids are in middle school, when they've already got one foot in the door of the church and one foot out of the church, and expect us to be able to fix your kids 
We've had people show up and ask us basically to do that. It's like, we're not their parents. We can't fix their kids. But what we can do is get them in an environment where God's spirit can, can, can speak to them. We can get them in an environment where there's an adult that shows up consistently, that reinforces what you're trying to teach them as a parent to help you win at home. Because another thing that you can do is stop paying more attention or start paying more attention to Jesus than you do to Fox, to CNN, to MSNBC. And I know some of you do this because I see what you post online. I I hear what you say after Supreme Court decisions, just simply repeating the talking points of whatever outlet that you get your news from. And as followers of Jesus, as people of Hope Community, I want to say you're better than that. You are better than that. We're called to interpret everything that we see through the good news of Jesus and not through the lens of our news media. If you're here today and you don't have kids, then take an inventory of things in your life that maybe you need to to refocus and reset and focus on Jesus. Because while you might not have kids, you do have influence. There are people that are looking to you that you are maybe intentionally or unintentionally passing a version of the faith onto so maybe it's time to, to look ahead, to focus your attention, to start actually following Jesus because following Jesus will make your life better and make you better at life. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he has already won the race. He's blazed the trail for us so we can run the race after him. We can run the race with him as our prize and we're not in this alone. We have a great cloud of witnesses here today. We have you here today to encourage one another as we run this race together. The history of the church, it's beautiful. The history of the church is broken. We're going to talk more about that brokenness next week. But it's nothing that is compared to the joy that is to come as we follow Jesus and pursue him. I love what Leo Perdue, a historian and a theologian, says. He says that the past has a vote but it does not get to issue a a veto. That is that history is important. The history of the church is important, but it can't veto us as we try to interpret and reimagine what the gospel looks like in our ages, to pass it on to the next generation. It's it's the story, this this history is the story of Jesus working in and through his church to bring about his purposes to bring about his kingdom, a kingdom of hope, a kingdom of love, a kingdom that will never end. And we are invited to run the race, to fix our eyes ahead on the author and the perfecter of our faith. So let's run together.